Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. Uh, good morning. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about product management in gaming, uh, but I'm going to try and, try and answer two questions specifically. The first one is why video games and the game industry is great for product managers to work in. Uh, and the second one is dive a little deeper into what product managers actually do in games, or why do games need product managers at this point? Um, why am I qualified to talk about this? It's pretty much all I've been doing for the last five years. Um, like Brad mentioned, I'm a lead product manager at Zynga. Zynga acquired Natural Motion, which was a British game studio back in 2014. So I work out of their offices here in London. Uh, I started my gaming and product manager career at Electronic Arts five years ago, back in India, and through Zynga, internally transferred and moved to London. Uh, uh, I love playing games. I still try and get about 10 to 15 hours in a week. It's never enough. Uh, but yeah, and just reach out to me after this if you just want to connect, give me feedback about the talk, or have any questions. Uh, yeah, so just a quick, basic caveat. These are my personal opinions based on my experiences. Do not represent the views of my company, my employer, past employers. Uh, just had to do it. Right. So I'm going to start with the first part, which is why video games make great products for product managers. Uh, why is the game industry great for PMs to work in? Um, and a lot of this comes from conversations I have with other PMs around, hey, what do you do in games? Why, do, why, do, why does your game need a product manager, and what do you actually do? So. Uh, trying to lift the veil a bit. Um, I'm going to start with, I mean, we are PMs here, so I'm just going to start with the, how the business looks and a bit of numbers. Uh, so as PMs, I notice that we tend to gravitate towards industries that are either emergent, doing well, have potential to grow. Uh, you can see this in how PMs moved um, through phases in e-commerce, fintech, especially big in London, uh, recently blockchains, where everyone's trying to go, get into or get out of. Uh, gaming by itself is a massive, massive industry. In fact, a lot of people don't know this. It is bigger than both film and digital music, which are the other two pillars of the entertainment industry. Uh, games over the last few years have shown the ability to uh, push about billion dollar revenue in a single calendar year. And with mobile gaming and new frontiers in terms of VR and AR, uh, those are, again, double digit growth areas. Uh, fantastic place to work. Um, and obviously, you have examples such as Fortnite, which are not just not massive businesses on their own, but they've become cultural phenomena. Uh, so yeah, just a quick example of how gaming as a business is actually quite well-structured, dominating, and poised for growth uh, going forward. Um, getting into more interesting stuff, so obviously, games revolve around players and what, how they behave and deal with different game systems. What this means as product managers is you have a lot of interesting uh, ex player experiences to craft uh, through building social systems. Um, with games moving more towards online and multiplayer play over the last many years, uh, what this means is you can either create shared experiences for players through some of the systems, 
uh, make sure that players with similar affinities can get together and form their own communities. And because players' experiences are influenced by other players and what they do, every time someone comes in and logs into your game for do a session, it's it has potential to be radically different from the previous session or the next session. Uh, and as product managers, this gives you amazing opportunity to observe a lot of these social behavior changes, but also track them and influence them through a lot of the systems we build. Uh, a good example of that is Pokemon Go. It's a popular mobile game. Um, they started doing this concept of raids where uh, they expect players to turn up at real-life locations, so parks and arenas. Uh, turn up and capture Pokemon together. Uh, it's, it's an amazing example because it's a game that actually convinces you to get out of your house and actually walk. Um, but the main thing to consider is, like I said, I mentioned about communities. You end up seeing behavior changes where players with similar affinities get together as communities. Even if games do not actually have systems to promote this, players by themselves find a way to do it. Uh, but the other bit is games either try and group players together to chase after shared goals uh, what this means is there's a lot of potential for cooperative play. And as PMs, you design these levers and structures to make sure that players have a great experience. Uh, but then we go towards PVP, which is player versus player experiences, where players compete against each other. Um, in, in a lot of the games I worked on, you end up seeing interesting trends around how players or groups of players over a period of time develop rivalries. Uh, and these rivalries actually also end up uh, translating to good long-term engagement and retention. Uh, so from a social point of view, both as a PM who's building a lot of these systems to make sure that players have great experiences, but also just observing how these change over the lifespan of a game, these change based on the demographics of your players and their backgrounds, but also at what stage they are in within the game, uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, I spoke about games being social, games being living worlds. Uh, this extends to economies and currencies. Uh, games nowadays tend to have currencies uh, singular or multiple, depending on how complex the games are. As a product manager, you need to make sure that you're taking care of a game economy really well. Games will have systems around inflows and outflows of these currencies. Uh, what these mean are, as a PM, you have to deal with issues such as inflation. Uh, are you making sure that there's no... Um, uh, the, the balance between the inflows and outflows are met really well, uh, but also because almost everything in a game is a virtual object, how do you make sure you're communi communicating the right perceived value of those virtual objects for your players? Uh, so that at the end of the day, a player, if he's going to spend currency trying to attain some of these objects, or he's going to spend 20 hours grinding through content to achieve certain items, uh, he has a fair understanding of what the value is, and that feels... Um, that feels precious, but it also feels that there's, there's a certain amount of gratification that comes through. The other bit with virtual goods is because micropayments and microtransactions have become more commonplace in games, players can actually pay a dollar value to purchase currency or virtual goods. So for a player, that adds in another complexity as a PM to make sure that anything they purchase for a dollar or five dollars, there's an equal amount of gratification that they get from the game. Um, and it's very rare where players can purchase something for a dollar value and then later convert it back to real money. So all of it stays within the virtual economy that you've created in your game. Need to make sure that that value is actually uh, well uh, communicated. Um, and with games allowing players to actually craft material and content and also sell them to other players opens up a lot more complexity uh, in a very exciting way. So players can create a suit of armor 
it has certain statistics at certain power levels, they can go and sell it on an in-game marketplace or auction house. Uh, so, sorry, I forgot to click through. Uh, so that's an example of an auction house from a game called World of Warcraft. Now, as a PM, you would want to make sure that there are certain limits on pricing just to make sure that it doesn't go haywire. But at the same time, you need to ensure that it still mimics a real-world marketplace. Your market economics should still actually scale within the game really well. Uh, and that's a really exciting challenge. Uh, it's some of the, one of the most fun things I actually end up doing on a weekly basis is making sure the economy is working really well. Uh, and the reason for this is a bad economy design will break your game. Players will notice, they will churn out. But at the same time, good economy is not just important for monetization, but is really critical to ensure that there's long-term retention and engagement for your game. Um, right, so actually my favorite part. Uh, as product managers, we are expected to be creative. We are expected to understand product design, user experience, a lot of it. Um, in games, you can multiply that by 10 or 100x. Uh, it's my personal sentiment that anyone who contributes meaningfully to a game is technically a game designer. But as a product manager working on games, you actually deep dive into game design. You have to understand the systems, the tuning mechanics, the optimizations, but also because all your systems in a game are intended to be immersive experiences. You just can't build a leaderboard system and not have the right gratification in terms of art and sound and character narrative. Uh, as a PM, you get that opportunity to actually expand the scope of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of feature design, in terms of system design and tuning, to include a lot of these creative outputs. Um, and it's an amazing experience. Um, and not just that, you get to, you're exposed to a team that's really creative and passionate about the stuff they do. And that sort of adds to the value generation of your job gives to you as a product manager in games. Um, a really side note as an example, uh, it wasn't actually something I was supposed to be doing, but uh, for one of the games I worked on, I got the opportunity for a period of eight months to actually write content and narrative, uh, build storylines. It was over and above what I regularly did. An amazing experience. I'm not sure how many other industries I actually get that sort of opportunity. Um, and it was fun. You, you're crafting storylines with other designers on your team, pushing these out to players, players actually appreciating it, uh, playing through those falling in love with some of the storylines, hopefully. Um, the next bit's about passion. Uh, I'll put a quote there about it being a two-way multiplier, and I'll dig into this a bit. Um, as a game developer and as a PM on a game team, uh, it's very easy to fall in love with the stuff you're doing. You, it is very easy to be very passionate about the work you're doing. Uh, and because, like I mentioned in my previous slide, you will be surrounded by people who are equally passionate about their work, uh, it leads to potentially should lead to better job satisfaction, improve your quality of work. Uh, and in general, you're just going to be really excited to get into work every day. But on the other side, um, the passion of a user base, uh, it's radically different because you will have players who are fanatics. They will be immersed in the sort of content you put out, the sort of characters your game has. Uh, they will come in and do multiple sessions in a day just because they want to be in that experience. They want to be immersed by a lot of what the game provides. Uh, and this is great. I mean, apart from the obvious benefits that you can then build content which players engage with, you know they're going to be longer-term engagement and retention impacts. The other thing you see is this is really, you get really good feedback from players. You're going to have players who are going to give you very vocal feedback about the stuff they love. Uh, but at the same time, if you mess up, 
they are going to be very clear in telling you about it. Uh, but the other bit is, and this is a bit of a personal anecdote, but the amount of gratification you, you get from putting out something that works really well and seamlessly in the game, and your players come back and tell you they love it, they engage with it, they interact with it, uh, that's really good. I mean, especially if you, you travel by tube and you see someone playing your game and they're talking to a friend and saying, hey, I really like this feature. And this has happened to people in my company, it's happened to people in the industry. I have a couple of colleagues here in the audience who will probably tell you the same thing. So passion's an amazing multiplier in the sort of work we do, uh, both from understanding how our players interact with the games uh, and the sort of emotional connection we can have with them with the sort of work we do, and as game makers and game developers, the sort of um, uh, incentive it gives us to get into work every day. Um, games have always been harbingers of innovation in tech, either as innovators or early adopters. A lot of the uh, enterprise and consumer solutions that you see commonplace nowadays around cloud, ad tech, um, microtransactions, or even uh, VR and AR are actually stuff that actually went through an incubation phase in games at the first. Uh, I'm going to call out a few examples of how the game industry is great for people who want to pursue cutting-edge technology as one of their passions. A uh, good example of that is AI. Uh, AI is fundamental to games starting with the basic example where I'm playing a football game, the computer or the game matches me against an opponent, I need to make sure the opponent is realistic, mimics human reactions, uh, the opponent is challenging, but either if not immediately, then through my actions or my skill improvement, it's beatable. Uh, to taking it to a more complex form where you have space exploration games where you build AI to actually procedurally generate whole planets with their own biomes, with animals, with ecosystems. So AI plays a really fundamental role. Uh, this example is actually where the DeepMind project partnered with the popular strategy game StarCraft to create the next generation of AI opponents. Uh, AI is great if you want to even create uh, twists and narrative storylines, dynamic quest systems. So a lot of work happens around AI in the game industry and as PMs, these are powerful tools for us to leverage. Um, how do you ensure that players across demographics, across time zones, across different uh, language bases can communicate effectively with each other? I spoke about games being social networks. What this means is you need to make sure that players can communicate with each other seamlessly without disrupting gameplay. Uh, a good example of it is the sort of real-time chat translation that happens, which actually is commonplace in games nowadays. Um, they have an amazing accuracy rate, and it, it's sort of the stuff which are now become platforms by themselves and expand it to other industries. Um, a new challenge that a lot of game makers are trying to solve is how do you make sure that players can communicate with each other seamlessly, have a great gameplay experience, without either typing a single word in the chat box or without having to be on a voice uh, chat uh, communication system. A lot of games have started trying to push the boundaries on how that works. Uh, security games are always prone to hackers, exploits. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that game companies, including uh, Zynga, are doing around security. Uh, not just protecting players' gameplay experiences, but also player data. Uh, and the last one's a bit of a niche example. I just wanted to bring it up just because to show what are the sort of diverse uh, innovations that happen within the industry. Uh, this specific example is from Microsoft. They recently introduced an adaptive controller for the Xbox. 
the challenge that a lot of game makers face is how do you make sure your content and your games are accessible to players across different ability levels. Um, and we deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the games from a software point of view. Microsoft tried to solve it from a hardware point of view. I'm not, going to, I'm not going too much into this because they just released an amazing trailer during the last Super Bowl a few weeks ago. I would recommend you guys check it out. Uh, it's, it's really good. It actually made me tear up, so. Um, in a good way, it's, it's, it's not a sad ad. <laughs> right, sorry. Uh, so, bit of my code. So, uh, it comes to the closing bit of this part, which is, uh, as PMs, I personally believe our biggest value addition to our organizations or businesses or teams is the fact that we solve problems. If not directly, then we enable our teams to actually solve a lot of these problems. Uh, working in video games has given me personally the opportunity to pick and choose the sort of problems I want to chase after across a diverse skill set and a diverse problem area, but also I've had a lot of fun doing this, and you can have problems across a length and breadth of topics. Uh, so just to close out this part, I'm just going to quickly run through this. Um, I spoke about in gaming as an industry. It's growing, it's thriving, has a lot of potential. Uh, there's a lot of scope to actually flex your creative muscles here. A uh, lot of individual agency in the sort of challenges you want to go after or the sort of influence you have uh, in terms of systems and economies and uh, player experiences. Uh, but also, this is where passion comes in. The amount of gratification you get as working in games, but also seeing your players embrace a lot of the content and changes you bring in is really amazing. Uh, and the last bit is it's fun. I mean, I've, do I've been doing this for five years. Hopefully, I can do it for the next 35, so it's been pretty good. Uh, which needs, leads me to the next part. Why do games need PMs? Why does the game industry actually need PMs? Uh, and for this, we're going to take a quick trip, a very high-level version of what game development looks like. So uh, conventional game development, it's not historic. It's still practiced by a lot of game companies. Uh, looks very similar to how software was built in the 90s or how movies are still built or made. Uh, you start with a concept, an idea. What am I trying to build? Do I pitch it to my company, to my organization, to my best friend, or to myself in the shower if I'm making a game alone? Uh, and then you flesh it out. You go down design. What's, what are the narrative uh, storyline for this game? What are the rule sets that your players play inside of? Uh, what's the theme? What's the content? Uh, and then you move to the execution phase. Um, Making a game is a lot of moving parts. So you have art, you have sound, you have design, you have uh, development and code, both from a client and server side. Uh, so basically, you go through this whole process, and then you start testing it, both from a quality assurance point of view, but also you're going to play test it. Uh, games go through multiple playtest loops internally within the team and company, but also trying to get it out to players. This is where you try and solve the bugs, get the last minute polish in, um, and you release. You do a, you're, if you're lucky, you get a massive marketing campaign to support you. You're on the right platforms and distribution, both offline and online. Um, you do launch, you do base level of maintenance, and then you sit and wait for the reviews to pour in, and fingers crossed, and then you end up getting very drunk. Uh, and at the end, end, end of all of this, you, typically the model was then you move to the sequel, or you move to the next game, or you move to the next project. You've created the game, you've shipped it, the sales come in, they're great. If they're not great, you do a retrospective and move on. And that's where now games as a service comes in. I've literally lifted this from Wikipedia. I'm, I'm gonna explain this a lot better, hopefully. But I'm just gonna read this out real quick. Represents providing video games 
uh, or game content on a continuous revenue model, uh, ways to monetize video games after the initial sale or to support a free-to-play model. Um, what does this actually look like? So if we go back to the basics of what game development looks like, uh, you go through concept, you go through design, production, testing, and you release, but you don't actually stop there. You then have this whole iterative loop of processes and content flows that you follow through for the rest of the lifespan of the game. Uh, so you're working, you get a lot of real-life data coming through, you do a lot of analysis, you get player feedback, you make changes. You have a very robust roadmap which, talk, which goes through putting in new features and content and events. Uh, obviously, you need to make sure your client and server base is robust, can continue to support the game for the next few years, so you obviously maintain those out. Uh, and just to support all of this as part of the game development process, you would have built the right tools, the back end, to make sure that this is sustainable. Uh, and this is pretty much what games as a service is, or what we call live services or live operations. Uh, very similar to what happens in software as a service, but just a lot more cooler and fun. <laughs> Why is this a good model? A uh, lot of reasons. The first one, obviously, it's a recurring revenue model. Um, it makes your revenue prediction and forecasting a lot more predictable, uh, but also over a period of time of the live service, it, it potentially can give you, you accrue a lot more revenue versus the previous traditional model. And part of it is because you've extended the life cycle of these games. You have examples of games that go into the market, they continue servicing players for years, or in, in, in this case you have decades. A good example of that is Clash of Clans. It's been around for a while. It's been a top 10 game for a while and continues to provide content and surprise and delight the players. Uh, when I say more player focused, I'm talking about the fact that once you launch the game, one, you obviously have the ability to make iterative changes. You can craft experiences for based on your player archetypes or player demographic. But also you have a lot more data coming in. You actually understand what players want. You take in their feedback. So your roadmap can accordingly change uh, and be a lot more flexible. You're obviously mitigating a lot of risks. Like movies, the, uh, traditionally games were a sort of hit and miss industry. Uh, you had a good chance that your game didn't make it because of either game was really bad or you had, or you had uh, forces and variables out of, outside of your control. With the games as a service or the live services model, that's not necessarily the case. There are enough examples of games that have had a suboptimal launch, uh, but it's still gone on to become billion-dollar businesses. Um, and the last bit is measure success better. This sounds a little vague, but uh, what this means is you don't need to stick to the conventional metrics of uh, sales and revenue and launch installs to actually just measure if the games are successful or not but also because games have different monetization and success metrics in terms of you could have a really small install base but monetize a lot better than games which are sitting with the billion players um, uh, as MAU. Uh, for your game, for the sort of genre you're playing in, you can define the right metrics for what, what, is, what is good or what does successful look like, and you have enough data to back it up. Uh, so overall, it's a pretty good model. This is where PMs come in. Uh, I've spoken a lot about how games are managed between creative, business, and technology. And as PMs, we sit right at that intersection. We work across these teams to make sure that uh, we are crafting solutions that make sure that live services continues to work over a long period of time. What do PMs actually do? It is a lot similar to PMs in regular consumer tech industries, but you will be responsible for KPIs and metrics, including monetization and revenue. 
uh, you will be responsible for defining your product strategy and vision for three, six, 12 months and beyond, and making sure there's a roadmap that you manage and operate. Um, design content and features, this is where the creative bit comes in. I spoke about that a lot. Uh, you have a lot of data to play through, a uh, lot of op opportunity to do experimentation, optimizations, iterate on a lot of things. Uh, it's really fun. Obviously, this is where I, I spoke about this bit in the passion bit, but you have to be a player champion. You have to understand what your consumers need. Uh, you have to try and give it to them. You need to surprise and delight them. Uh, and obviously, you need to know the market. You need to understand what the competition's like. You could be the number one game right now. You could be the number one game for the next three years. But four years down the line, someone will come and topple you. What do you do then? You need to be able to understand what's working and what's not. So very similar to what PMs do in consumer tech, a lot of people actually get surprised when I tell them, hey, I do a lot of stuff. I still deal with roadmaps and wireframes and uh, product reviews on a regular basis. Uh, but also product managers, like I said, making games is a lot of moving pieces. Product managers fit right in as a cog within the entire structure. One, obviously, PMs tend to be the interface between leadership, your organization leadership and the rest of the game team. But also, you end up partnering with a lot of these uh, functions, especially design, analytics, marketing, uh, but also you, because of part of your roadmap uh, implementation, you're partnering with Dev and QA and Art and UX to make sure that you are creating meaningful content for your players and keeping them engaged and you're monetizing really well. Uh, obviously, you need to make sure that your players have quality of service from a customer support point of view. You need to build out the community, make sure that the social element is taken care of. So as PMs, you are an integral cog in a lot of this. Uh, so I'm coming to the close of this, and I'm just going to run through this really quick. This is going to be a really ugly animation transition right now. Uh, but it's around the fact that at every one of these places, PMs actually touch the game development process. PMs involve themselves heavily as part of the creation process around the design, the implementation, um, a lot of what the concept is. What does it take to make your game idea a successful business? That's what PMs do. Obviously, PMs define a lot of the work that needs to be done to make sure that you hit successful live service, peak live service uh, operations, something like that. Sorry, fumbled that. Uh, during release, you work with the marketing teams. What's, uh, you work with the user acquisition teams. What's the brand of your game? How do you make sure you market it really well? How do you acquire the right subset of users? Uh, and then for each of the bits about live services, you end up doing a lot of work. Uh, you are responsible for the roadmap. You are going to put out events. You are going to run A-B tests with your players and try and understand what's the right mix for a new feature or sale you're trying to run. You will engage with the customer support and community teams to make sure that players are taken care of and the qualitative feedback is actually well read. So yeah, as a PM, you are actually going to be interacting with every touch point, both as part of making a game and then running the live services. Uh, and like I said, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm coming to the close of this. I'll try to answer these two questions. Hopefully I have succeeded, but I just wanted to mention two more points, and this comes out a lot as part of conversations. Uh, one, a question I get asked a lot is, hey, this all sounds cool. I've never worked in games. I don't like games that much. I played a bit as a kid. Can I still work in games as a PM? Uh, my answer to that is, well, yes, if you've worked in games or you've been passionate about games, it is obviously a good stepping stone. Uh, I've personally seen enough rock star PMs come in from other industries, come into game companies, work. Uh, nine out of 10 cases, they end up staying because it's 
probably the most fun they've had in their career. But a lot of times they even move on to non-gaming fields uh, and they've succeeded really well. So no, that's, it's not a barrier to entry. Um, and the second bit is um, a lot of opportunities for PMs out there in the game industry. A lot more companies who traditionally didn't follow the free-to-play model or the games-as-a-service model are evolving and moving towards this model. Uh, and globally, every company is actually looking to hire PMs or, or they call it business performance managers or whatever those roles are. Uh, and just a personal shill, Zynga is hiring, both in the UK and globally, so you can reach out to me or just check out our careers page. Uh, but yeah, uh, I've rambled a bit, but I hope I've answered these two questions, and that's actually the end of my talk, and thank you. Thank you for listening to the Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.